but I want a happy meal and you give them five bucks and they give you back a happy meal, maybe some change. Uh, faith works the same way, but what most people, especially young people don't understand is the flow or the currency, right? Welcome back to Young Smart Money with me, your host, Apple Kreider. Today we're sitting down with David Meltzer. This guy is doing huge things from public speaking to writing books to coaching coaches. Like this guy is, is absolutely impacting so many people. And as he will tell you throughout the podcast, his goal is to impact over a billion people. So this guy is well on his way to doing that. And the message that he's spreading is one that I am extremely on board with, okay? What we're gonna be talking about in this episode of the podcast is a few different things, okay? It's gonna be very mindset focused, okay? And for those of you guys that think mindset is a bunch of mumbo jumbo, I, I really don't know what to tell you, okay? Like from the literally hundreds of successful six, seven, eight, nine, and 10 figure online entrepreneurs that I've interviewed on this podcast, like time and time again, they are telling me that the way you think is indicative of the results you will get, okay? Your thoughts become your actions and your actions become your results. So you need to get those thoughts on point if you want to have the actions and the results to show for it. So in this episode, we're talking about gratitude. Um, that is something that David is extremely passionate about and something that I think is very important to, for you guys to hear. We're also talking about the idea of abundance, okay? recently I had a conversation with somebody about an hour long conversation about the idea of abundance and the idea of there being more than enough to go around. So we're going to be talking about abundance and also through the lens of inequality, because clearly not everyone is on the same playing field. So how does the idea of abundance and having an abundance mindset explain for that clear inequality that exists between people and groups of people? We're going to dive into that a bit as well. And then the last thing we're going to cover is this topic that David dives very deep on. And that's the idea of having sort of like a third eye or a sixth sense. And if you guys want to hear more about that and about what David describes this sixth sense as, um, definitely stay tuned. It's something that I've already gone back and listened to, taken notes on, because it's, it's, it's an idea that, that really has me fascinated. And the idea that you can really develop and hone this sixth sense, which is, which is an extremely valuable sense to have, um, is, is, is super, super cool. So without further ado, I'm going to let David on to the podcast again. Dude is absolutely crushing it. I'm super stoked for you to hear from him. So without further ado, let's welcome David Meltzer to Young Smart Money. All right, David, welcome to Young Smart Money. How are you doing today? I am doing so wonderfully. I feel young, I feel smart, and I love money. <laughs> there we go, there we go. Then you are in the right place. So David, our listeners got to hear a little bit about you in the intro to this episode, but for those of them that aren't super familiar with David Meltzer, what you're currently working on right now, Give us a quick like 60 to 90 second snapshot of where you are right now. Sure. Right now, I am the executive producer and host of Elevator Pitch, the number one digital business show. Uh, I have the top entrepreneur podcast called The Playbook with Entrepreneur. I have a sports marketing company, a global sports marketing company, which I founded with Hall of Fame quarterback Warren Moon. I am a Forbes top 10 speaker in the world and talk in a variety of different subjects around the world. I have a new book coming out. It's my fourth book called Game Time Decision Making on July 16th. The other books are called Connected to Goodness, Compassionate Capitalism, and Unstoppable, which was with Jack Canfield from Chicken Soup for the Soul, Creating the Life You Love. Um, I also am a top 100 business coach in the world. And so I do executive coaching, life coaching, coaching the coach uh, as well. And uh, I'm working on being the oldest man on Instagram. They call me Uncle David. <laughs> and LinkedIn, 
uh, all at David Meltzer. David Meltzer, I'm going to build a big YouTube too. I got to 7,000 subscribers and I'm going to get to a million by the end of the year. So those are some of the things I'm working on. There we go. There we oh, go. I got, I got a couple. Most importantly, I got four children and a wife. So I, <laughs> most can't forget. Can't forget. Most important. There we I go. There forget. We go. I apologize. <laughs> I'm very illuminating and honest, but they are the most important thing. Hmm. 100%, 100%. So David, we have a lot of younger listeners here on the podcast. The listener base does skew very young. So I want to sort of flash back in time and talk with you first about like your early upbringing and, and childhood. So the, the place I like to focus the most on is like middle school, high school years. I think those can be pretty indicative of like what a person's like starting off. So in that time period, were you somebody who was really into school? Were you into sports, music? Were you getting into entrepreneurship? Like what did that look like for you? You know, for me, I wanted to be rich. And the way I chose to be rich was simply to be a professional football player. So I had a single mom, six kids, two bedroom apartment. And, uh, you know, my mom was, you know, for that age group, you know, my mom was fully focused in on one thing. You know, the fetus was fully developed after graduate school. Doctor, lawyer, failure. Uh, that was my choice. Uh, so for me to want to be a professional athlete, I had to kind of hide that and, you know, I went to extremely academic college that would let me play football, but I chose that college because they would let me play football. Mm. Um, baseball and football were my best sports, did very well in them, but uh, I wanted and went to college to be a doctor. Uh, really always took my mom's advice. I wanted to be rich only to buy my mom a house and a car. I didn't want anything for myself. I grew up really happy, and the only time I wasn't happy was when I saw my mom stressed about money. The car broke down dishwasher broke or she couldn't afford summer camp or was worried about schools. Uh, you know, my mom, some kids may re recognize this. Uh, she's a black belt in, in martial arts. So she's wow. a third, third degree black belt in the martial art of Jewish guilt. So my mom would guilt us. <laughs> some of the kids out there may, <laughs> may resonate. You know, I would say typically I wanted to please my mom and make her happy. And I was willing to do whatever it took uh, to buy her house and a car. Uh, and to make her happy. Mm. That's huge. So you're, you're going to school, <clears throat> you're sort of doing sports on the side um, and, and, and telling your parents and maybe even telling yourself that you wanted to be a doctor. Um, where did that sort of transition for you into entrepreneurship? Like, did you end up graduating when you got out of school? What did you end up doing? Right. So just to take you briefly, because it's a good story. I went my first year, I was pre-med and after my first football season, uh, after I got run over by Christian Okoye, the Nigerian nightmare, I decided I literally was lying on my back telling myself, doctor, lawyer, failure. So I went over to visit my oldest brother who was a doctor doing his residency. And like every 18 year old, I did not know what I was talking about. So when I visited him in the hospital, I'm like, dude, I hate hospitals. He's like, what are you talking about? You want to be a doctor? I'm like, I want to be a sports doctor. I'm not going to be in a hospital. I'll be on a training center or field. And he gave me a great piece of advice, which I'd like to pass on. It's, he told me to be more interested than interesting. And so, you know, I, I didn't even know that doctors had to study in a hospital for years and years to be a doctor. I was just in classes. The only concern I had was what I needed to do to get into med school. I never asked anyone what it truly was like to be a doctor. And so I encourage everyone to find people in the situation that they want to be in and ask them for advice, ask them for help, ask them for knowledge, ask them for perspective. So because I wasn't going to be a doctor, I immediately switched to being a lawyer. I studied really hard. Now, here's another interesting thing that I did that's different than most people. I wanted to be rich. So what I did when I went to pick my law school, because I did really well, 
because I was more interested than interesting. I had my choice of law schools and people wondered why I chose Tulane uh, down in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. The reason I chose Tulane is that I found out which uh, legal uh, profession paid the most, right? I wanted to be rich out of law school. Yeah. So I saw that oil and gas litigators made the most money when they graduated law school. So I went to the number one oil and gas maritime law <laughs> school in the country uh, and specifically to be an oil and gas litigator. So when I graduated off previous recession to be an oil and gas litigator, uh, but I also, uh, one thing that I did is I could always sell. So when I was in college to make money since I was poor, I sold encyclopedias and educational systems mm. and door-to-door -door sales and I was the top guy and I made a lot of money in college to help subsidize my scholarship. Uh, then in law school, uh, at 4 a.m., I used to wake up and sell Roadrunner Sport tennis shoes, and I was the top sales rep from 4 a.m. to 9 a.m. Uh, before I went to the law firm. And because of that sales experience, I got offered a job selling legal research online uh, with the world's largest legal publisher. And I went to my mom, and I asked her what job I should take. Should I be an oil and gas litigator or sell legal research online? This is 1992. So the internet was .edu, XD computers, <laughs> monocode screens, 9,600 bound modems. So it would take hours to download something, and I'm not sure. joking, hours to download something. You cannot ever have a video game, trust me. Or <laughs> There's no such thing. Anyway, my mom, without blinking, told me that I absolutely needed to be a real lawyer that uh, this internet thing was a fad and I'd be wasting my time, uh, wasting my whole education that I should be a lawyer. And for the first time in my life, I realized just because somebody loves you and nobody loves me more than my mom, doesn't mean they give you good advice. Once again, you need to take advice from people that sit in the situation that you want to be in. I'm a second grade teacher who filled out turnstiles, greeting cards on turnstiles after she was done being a second grade teacher at night so we could afford food. That's a mom that can teach you about, you know, being responsible, having work ethic, being a family person, you know, having your values and character integrity, but they don't know anything about the internet or the law. So to ask them about what I should do for my profession to make a lot of money uh, was not the right choice. Uh, anyway, I thought, for sure that uh, I would uh, make more money selling legal research online. I also realized that if I, I screwed up and I was wrong, I could always go back and be an oil and gas litigator because my mom made me take the bar. So I mitigated my risks. Uh, fortunately, I was really good at it and I was a millionaire nine months out of law school. The internet was not a fad. Uh, we sold the company, uh, West Publishing in 1995 for $3.4 billion. Uh, and that's when companies weren't even selling for a billion. So that changed the trajectory and the branding of my career. I went from being embarrassed to say I was a salesperson where I would keep the ESQ and tell people I was a lawyer uh, into bragging about that I was an internet guru. And I went into the Silicon Valley to be a director of a middleware company and uh, help raise $169 million uh, in my 20s uh, on Sand Hill Road in the Silicon Valley which then led for me to be the CEO of the world's first smartphone, the PCE phone. Wild. That's, that's a wild, wild trajectory. So one thing that I want to bounce back to really quick is sales, because that's something that a lot of young people ask me about. And they tell me like, 
they're 18, 19, 20 years old, just coming out of high school maybe, and they're getting into their first sales position and they're kind of struggling to keep their head above water. So it sounds like you really excelled in sales. Um, what do you think it set you apart from the average salesperson that kind of like struggles to keep their head above water and you were able to excel so, so rapidly in this space? My father was a great salesperson, my real father, and he gave me one piece of advice. He said, people buy on emotion for logical reasons. And so the one thing that made me a great salesperson at first was that I could connect emotionally with what people liked and didn't like to provide that within our relationship as well as that trust so that even though I couldn't articulate value as well as I can today and I'm not, a, wasn't a professional at sales like I am today and a scientist and a teacher and a mentor of sales, uh, I could connect emotionally with people and then provide the logical reason. So uh, that's what made me so great at sales at first. Hmm. Do you have any advice for how a young listener can start to implement that, that emotional connection piece? Yeah. So, you know, there's six steps that they can follow, but the emotional, so number one is build, build credibility for us. For example, when I was selling encyclopedias, I used to tell people, Hey, I come from a family of six kids. All my siblings went to the Ivy leagues. I got a full scholarship to college. And the reason is, is that my mom read to us from the time we were born, had the resources in the homes, although we were completely broke, she invested in education and I built credibility of who I was and then emotionally attached to them that they wanted their kids to be educated and go to the Ivy Leagues. Um, so credibility combined with that emotional aspect, then you can get into reasons, impacts and capabilities with a quantitative analysis. But if you stick to the rule of, I'm gonna give credibility at first, and then I'm gonna emotionally connect, and then I can provide value, you will succeed in sales every single, every single time. Hmm. Fascinating, fascinating. So um, I, I'm, I'm interested now in moving more into your, your time in Silicon Valley, um, because I know a lot of younger listeners have, have a fascination with, with that area and what goes on there. So um, what made you want to make the move down there after exiting this first company? Yeah, so what happened was uh, through the merger, I started realizing a huge opportunity. Headhunters were calling me every day about opportunities uh, to be an executive in the internet. Uh, since I was one of the few people on earth with such experience in the internet, being able to quantifiably make money in the internet, I had sales experience as well. Uh, so you know, people were just throwing warm bodies at positions. Uh, I personally felt it was like the gold rush and uh, I wanted to be involved. So uh, I picked you know, an Accenture uh, funded company that did our merger at our big company. So I had some relationships, some security. Uh, I asked for a lot of money uh, to go there. And so I was actually originally commuting from San Diego to San Jose uh, and in an extremely exciting time uh, in the Silicon Valley about uh, building relationship capital and situational knowledge on how the internet was gonna be built. Fascinating, so as far as like that, that um, relational equity and, and, and the, the basically the, the equity that you were building in those relationships, um, talk to a young listener now who wants to start like building out their network and connecting with some high value individuals. Like how were you able to do that and how would you advise a young person to start implementing those, those strategies? When you're young, there's only two questions you should be asking yourself, right? Only two questions that will take you to the top. Number one, how can you be of service? How can you provide value? And you wanna provide service and value to those people who sit in the situation that you want to be in. And you can never reach high enough. 
The second one is the bigger piece of advice. The one piece of advice that I'd always give myself, not only when I was 15, 20, 25, 35, 45, 55, I'm not 55 yet, but will give myself. Uh, and that's simply, do you know anyone that can help me? You got to learn that question. Do you know anyone that can help me? And if you go to those people that sit in the position that you want to be in, that sit in the situation that you want to be in, and simply ask that question, hey, I'm looking to do this. Do you know anyone that can help me? Everybody will answer yes. If they won't help you themselves, they'll find someone else to help you. Become an investment of others. Create the flow, the currency of faith the aggregate of what you think, say, do, believe, and even the unconscious competencies of your genetics, your personality traits, characteristics, obsessions, and addictions, and the energy that you carry. Those people that are most successful, they're the ones who ask for help at a young age. I was really good at a young age of asking my mentors whether that's how I ended up with job offers, that's how I ended up in the positions I did within the organizations I work for, that's how I introduced them with future job offers, that's how I ended up being the CEO of the world's first smartphone, was simply asking, do you know anyone that can help me? Hmm. And like, what's, what's the power in that question? Because clearly that is a very powerful question and, and asking for help is really important, but like, why, why do you feel that question is so powerful? Uh, for two reasons. One, I not only is money a currency, and a currency is an object of energy in which you put into the flow to receive what you want. But faith is a currency. As I told you, it was the aggregate of what you think, say, do believe in the unconscious competencies that I mentioned before. But faith is an object of energy in which you put into the flow. The difference is how do we get what we want out of the flow? You need to ask. And so for me, it's not only a pragmatic statistical thing of making more people available who have an investment in you. Remember, Ben Franklin wrote in his autobiography, when we ask somebody for help, we become an investment of theirs. Meaning not only will they help us, but they'll continually try to make us succeed because they take great pride. They take great ego-based emotion into our own success. And so you can see a lot of people that were drivers and nannies and, you know, car washers of very, very powerful, wealthy people end up running businesses for those people. One of my friends played golf for Sidney Frank and ended up being the vice president of marketing of Grey Goose simply because he asked for help. He created a mentor-mentee relationship. He looked two opportunities to expand himself. When he was in golf, he had approached Sidney Frank, the owner of Grey Goose, and said, hey, you know what, I can't play golf for you my whole life. I'm looking to expand and accelerate my career. Do you have anything that you may be able to help me with, somebody you could introduce me to, et cetera? And Sidney said, hey, I'm starting a new vodka company. You know, would you like to be involved at a grassroots and end up being a multimillionaire with no college education? So that's, I mean, that's fascinating. And I, I totally agree with the fact that, like, it's like the people you know, and like once you, they feel like you are an investment for them, like, yeah, they, they, they develop that connection. And, and I have people who I have that mentor-mentee relationship with now on both sides, like people that I have been helping out, like either start a podcast or just like get their name out there or people who, who have helped me get to that next level as well. And, and those relationships are just so fulfilling and, and they've really been, been the cornerstones of like what, what I've done so far in the 20 years that I've like lived. So I, I totally agree with you on that. One thing that you mentioned that I'm super fascinated with is the idea of, I think you mentioned a flow um, and like putting faith into this flow and currency into this flow. So talk to us about, about that flow and like, what is, what does that mean to you? Yeah. So I'll use money as an example and then talk about faith in the subsequent. So 
money is an object in which we put into the flow, which makes it a currency. The current is the cash flow of going to a store and saying, hey, you know what, I want a Happy Meal, and you give them five bucks and they give you back a Happy Meal, maybe some change. Uh, faith works the same way, but what most people, especially young people, don't understand is the flow or the currency, right, that carries the energy is one of attraction. And uh, you have to put action forth, right? Just like you have to make the money and give the money. The same thing is true. And so you have to take action. You have to think the right thing, say the right things, do the right things, believe the right things, have the right personality traits, characteristics, obsessions, and addictions, as well as carry the right energy in order to put that faith into the current of the universe. And the only difference is, as in the pragmatic world, there's you know a tire store, a radio store, you know Best Buy. There's Amazon. Well, the universe is much easier. There's everything, and there's enough of everything for everyone. And when you put your faith into that flow, into that current, right? You put your currency into that current. There's what I call a store of intention, right? A lot of people call it the field of intention. I believe there's a tremendous shopping mall of intention which says if you put the faith into the right things, you will get the right things. You get what you put faith into. And I see people all the time, they put faith into the wrong things and they get what they don't want, right? They put faith in what their parents want for them and then they get what their parents want for them and then they resent their parents. Uh, a lot of people, I'll give you a good example. When I was your age, you know, I would put faith into the wrong things. For example, I was taking finals. I think it's finals time right now. And I'd say, oh, God. God, I hope this question isn't on the test. I hope this question isn't on the test. And guess what question was first on the test, right? <laughs> the one I put faith into. If I would have just put faith into, I know they're going to ask this. I know they're going to ask this. I'm prepared. I know they're going to ask this. That's what would occur. That's fascinating. So how, how, do you, how do you think about the idea of abundance? Because you mentioned that you feel that there is an always enough for everyone who, who like wants it. So how... Like, like explain that idea a little bit more. So there's three different worlds that people live in. The first world is a scarce world yeah. uh, where people are victims, right? There's, it's a world of not enough. Everything happens to them. There's not enough of anything for anyone. There's never enough. Now, that doesn't matter mean or matter what you have. So I know guys that have $40 million houses and there's still not enough. Right, there'll never be enough. There's a scarce universe. It's a competitive universe that if they have something, that means that somebody else would have had it. That's not the world that I live in. The second world is one that I lived in for a while, and that's the world of just enough. Right, there's just enough of everything. No matter what I had, and I was a multimillionaire by the time I was 32, uh, I had everything that I wanted, but it was just enough. There is, and, and I believe everything happened for me uh, and then I realized there's an abundance in the universe, that there's more than enough of everything for everyone, that things don't happen to me. I'm not a victim and I don't live in a world of not enough. Things don't even happen for me. I'm not even an optimist anymore that everything happens for me and there's just enough for me. I actually am a toptimist. I'm the top of all optimists because I believe that there, everything comes through me for everyone else, that there's enough of everything for everyone. In fact, I believe that in such uh, faith that I know and I expand and accelerate my own being that everything comes through me for others, which is why my mission statement in my business is to make a lot of money so I can help a lot of people and have a lot of fun. 
and I get more and more and more because the universe allows everything to come through me. And because things come through me, I never overflow. I never have any clogs or resistance or shortages or voids or obstacles. I simply expand, allowing everything to come through me for the benefit of others. I, I really, I really like that idea. And, and the idea of adopting an abundance mindset is something that I've really been putting into practice lately. How do you then, in, in terms of thinking about that and how, how energy, how currency like flows through you, how do you think about inequality? Like, how do you think about the fact that some people don't have as much as others? Of what, right? So everyone has enough of everything. If you, if you actually needed anything, you wouldn't be here. Okay, so perspective, utilizing what they need to learn is to utilize gratitude to give them perspective that your past is great, your present's better, and your future is brighter. They need to learn forgiveness or empathy that I only need to forgive myself, you know, that mistakes are just miracles, that I project my insecurity about mistakes and blame other people, but more importantly, that uh, taking those mistakes, I waste so much time, energy, emotion, resources, and relationships because I'm making mistakes, uh, which leads to accountability, which is simply, what did I do to attract this to myself and what am I supposed to learn from it, which gives me complete control of my life, uh, which then leads to inspiration, and inspiration is a duality, right? How and what do I connect to to inspire me? And the more that I'm inspired, allowing that inspiration to come through me for others. So it's just a matter of understanding what scarcity is. Scarcity is an ego-based emotion that there's not enough, that there's a fear of loss, that simply I'm separate from others, that I'm either inferior or superior to them. I have a need to be right, I need to be offended, I need to be fearful, anxious, guilty, resentful, all the fearful needs of the universe that I don't need. And when I live in a world of more than enough and ever feel those ego-based emotions that edge goodness out of my life, I simply take a moment, go back to center, and get back on the consistent every day, persistent without quit pursuit of my truth or my potential, no matter what it is that I want. Hmm. So how... How would you advise a young listener who is not feeling grateful right now to start developing that? Because they look at people, they may be envious of people who have um, different things than them and envious of people who are in different places than them. How, how do you advise that person to start really honing in on gratitude? You know, for me, it's very simple. I believe in lowering the bar. I believe in practicing every day, right? That idea of happiness is derived from the enjoyment of the consistent, everyday, persistent, without quit pursuit of your truth or potential. So if gratitude is the thing that you feel you don't have, if you don't have a gracious perspective, it's the easiest way to change your life, right? I've studied physics, quantum physics, metaphysics, knowing that if you simply just say thank you before you go to bed and thank you when you wake up, within 30 days, you will change your life. I call it the gratitude challenge. The hardest part of saying thank you for 30 straight days is that our ego gets in our way and that we can't do anything 30 straight days. I challenge people all the time to DM me, you know, at David Meltzer, give me some sort of communication day one through 30 of anything you want to do, let alone gratitude, and watch how difficult it is. 99.9% .9 of all people won't be able to do something for 30 straight days, even if it only takes 0.1 seconds, like thinking or saying, um, thank you. Uh, you know, it's crazy how far in our own way it is. And the irony of it is, in order to be successful and to get acceleration and exponential growth in our life, 
All we have to do is enjoy the consistent everyday, persistent without quit pursuit of our potential and consistency is the key to life. Mm. I, I couldn't agree more. And, and ego, I think is, is a huge thing that does get in a lot of young people's way, especially how do you think about like, is that still something that you struggle with or like, how are you able to distance yourself from your ego and, and, and remove or sort of mitigate that obstacle um, when you're trying to, to be more grateful or, or do these things? That question just displays your enormous old soul awareness because that's a phenomenal question. Thank you. Uh, you know, a lot of people ask me that all the time. I teach ego, right? I teach how I'm one of the leading business coaches in the world and I'm really an ego coach, right? So uh, every day I have to face my ego. It's not something that I can get rid of. It, it's literally as much as your heart, right? Remember, if your heart stops beating, you're Stop, you still can be here your eyes can stop your arms can stop your legs your ears your mouth everything can stop except for your heart the only other thing that is always with you when you're alive is your ego your ego goes along with that heart and that ego is always going to create these difficulties to take you out of trajectory so if I'm on a direct trajectory towards my truth towards my potential the ego is what creates resistance, voids, shortages, and obstacles for me. Those needs of the ego that are involuntary, that we cannot control, are what, number one, we have to practice being aware of, and then two, we need to practice getting back to center. Two steps. So we need to, at a young age, start identifying, man, I'm projecting my insecurity. Man, I have a need to be right. I have a need to be resentful. I have a need to be guilty. I have a need to be angry. I have a need to be frustrated. I need to feel superior. I have a need to be inferior. I have a need for not enough or just enough. I'm not abundant, right? All these different things of the ego. And number one, if we learn to identify it, that's a crucial quality to have. But two, then learning once we identify it, how do I go back to center onto the direct trajectory towards my potential and my truth? I, I love that so much. As far as like bringing yourself back to center, what kind of techniques, strategies, or like ways do you do that yourself? Is it, is it meditation? Is it like self-reflection? Is it journaling? Like what do you do? So all of those things that you listed are forms of meditation, right? Too many people put a man-made construct on meditation and if they only knew that meditation is simply how do I get to center? So breathing, journaling, focus, I use theta meditation and quantum healing. It's a specific form of guided meditation to elevate my awareness through vibration. Everything in the world vibrates. I believe that awareness is the key to the universe. So I want to increase my awareness. And because I know that you can only be aware of that which vibrates equal to or less than you, meaning the earth vibrates the slowest, then plants, animals, humans, sound, light, and thought. The thought that vibrates the fastest is the truth. So if I'm on the consistent, persistent pursuit of my potential or my truth, I'm consistently accelerating and growing towards a higher vibration, which is an elevated awareness so that I'll know whether to buy or sell. Most importantly, I'll know whether my ego is in my way or not. I'll know all of these different things about being at peace to create. Because when we're at peace, we're in the flow. We can utilize our currency of faith. We can use our currency of money to easily stay in the flow, to maximize the potential of everything coming through us, to allow more to come through us that we want to provide for others. 
massive, massive amounts of value here, guys. Like literally David is just dropping so much value right now. I'm, I'm going to have to go back and listen to this at least three times because there's just Me so too, much man. that I want to take notes of. I'm teaching myself. So I go back <laughs> and I watch it myself because everything that's coming through me right now is I channel the information, the genius of the universe coming through me. It's for me as well. So uh, I'll go back and listen as well. <laughs> I love that. So one thing that I've heard you talk about before is sort of this third eye concept that you've talked about before. Um, and that like awareness is sort of like a third eye or like a, another sense that, that you have on, in your arsenal. So can you talk to us about that concept for, for our listeners that aren't familiar with that? Yeah. So, you know, uh, we are built with five senses that determine how we take our data inputs. There's about 10,000 new thoughts a day or, or new data inputs that we get a day. And our five senses are, you know, seeing or smelling or tasting or hearing and are touching. That's how we conceive the data inputs into the cellular memory that we have, which then go into the 40,000 of the subconscious thoughts that we have every day, the same exact 40,000 thoughts, which we want to start amalgamating into the most positive, higher vibrating thoughts, which then can actually activate and deactivate our DNA or our unconscious competency, change our personality traits, characteristics, obsessions, and addictions, as well as shift our energy so that unconsciously we can attract what we want into our lives. Well, if we can control right, those data inputs right, and control with our awareness, uh, then we can elevate this whole process and consistently, like I said, every day persistently without quit, pursue our truth. And so for me, it all starts with the inputs that we have. What we don't consider is the truth. How do we pursue the truth? Because our eyes deceive us, our nose deceives us, our mouth deceives us, our ears deceive us, and our taste, right? Every, I mean, our, our touch deceives us. They're not the truth. The fifth eye, right? This, this third eye, sorry, the, the sixth sense, the, the third eye, uh, it can see things and be aware of so much more that is out of the way of the ego, right? We, once we start interpreting, we allow the ego to interpret as well. If we work outside of the ego, the third eye allows us to be in the truth and we can be aware of the truth. And so, you know, I've seen running backs, quarterbacks in, in sports, you know, they're using their third eye. You're wondering like, how did he know that guy's coming to pound him from behind? Or how did he know to move left or right? Most running backs in the NFL have an extraordinary third eye. They have a sense of where everything is, even though their eyes aren't seeing it, their ears aren't hearing it, their nose isn't smelling it, they're definitely not tasting it, and nobody's touching them. They know that there's a hand three inches away from their shoulder pad from behind them. How do they know it? Their third eye. And we can utilize that third eye in business, in relationships, in sports, all the different places that we can see things without illusions and get out of our own way. How do you start to develop that skill or that ability to really utilize that sense? So meditation, peace, being in the flow, um, you know, that is the practice. And I always tell people, look, practice two minutes a day, lower the bar. You don't have to go, you know, it's like, if, if you want to start running a marathon, don't run 10 miles your first day because you'll never run again. You'll be so sore, you'll never do it again. You know, you're much better off running one mile the first day. So with meditation, developing the third eye, creating awareness uh, and getting out of your own way, just practice, you know, two minutes a day is worth way more than an hour on the weekend or two hours on the weekend. Sit down for two minutes, breathe through your nose, sit up straight, you know, spine straight, breathe through your nose, 
out through your mouth and just stay aware in a non-judgmental analytical state. And pretty soon you'll start developing your third eye and you'll start seeing things that other people don't see. Absolutely. Now, David, one thing is that it seems like you have been talking about a lot in the interview so far and something that I really admire about you is your persistence. And this is something that I see a lot of young people not um, really having locked down. Like they're bouncing around between eight different things. They're not focused on one thing in particular. And the word that you've mentioned a lot of times so far is persistence. So how would you advise a young listener who has the attention span of a goldfish and is bouncing around between all these different things to like hone in and really move forward in, in one like linear direction or really channel that persistence after one thing? Yeah, so, you know, number one, you can have eight different things, but make sure they're all aligned in a vertebrae with one objective, right? And know, know that you're prioritizing that which gives you the most value. And so I usually focus every day on three to five different things. I know I was with Andy Frisella last weekend, who's, you know, one of my co-mentors now. I really enjoy listening to his podcast and learning from him. But he has an extraordinary rule that he uses. He, he does five tasks a day. And so all he does is he lists out the five most important things that he needs to get done and he gets them done seven days a week and then he stops doing it. And after that, he does what he wants to do instead of what he needs to do. Uh, so I would tell people, look, go ahead, list out what you need to do, see how they're interrelated, how the vertebrae works and how they can complement each other and maximize the opportunity and then prioritize by what is most important first. Do not let urgency get into the way. What should be urgent is what's most important, right? That's what should be urgent. Now, sometimes, you know, if you cut yourself and need stitches, that's very important because it's also urgent but importance is the main factor, right? So for example, we allow, because of emotional attachment to other people and judgment and ego and all these other things, we allow someone in our life to say, hey, go pick up the milk. And we make that more important than making money to make them, to buy the milk, right? Where it doesn't matter if we go and buy the milk right now or on our way home from work, right? Mm. But we make it so urgent because of who is delivering the message and we allow our ego of importance and other things to get in the way. Don't make things urgent just because. Make sure that they're important. That's why we make it urgent. Yeah, that distinction between importance and urgency is something that I found to be very, very impactful in everything that I do and really just like sitting down and evaluating like when something comes up, is this important? Or do I just feel like it's urgent because somebody asked me to do it or like all of these multitude of reasons why something could feel really urgent, but like reflecting on like, okay, is this actually something that I should be doing right now? Or is it something that I can wait? Yeah. And so here's some examples for real life for young people, because I have four teenage, you know, I have three teenagers and one young boy. Um, and, and I did it myself. I have made phone calls, playing video games and watching TV more important than what's really important because I thought they were urgent, right? So if you're involved in a video game and somebody asks you to do something important, you know, just because you're not done with the game doesn't mean, right? That's urgent because the game's ending. That's not more important. So when you get home from work and you're on a trip and all you could think about is how important your family is, and then the minute you sit down to dinner with your three teenage daughters and your son and your wife who you miss more than anyone and want to spend valuable time with, but yet you get an urgent phone call, 
with somebody you barely know? Why do you treat someone that you barely know better than the people you care most about and that all you could think about for the last three days? Because you don't understand importance versus urgency. So television, video games, phone calls, text messages, emails are not necessarily important. They may be urgent, but they're not important. So don't give it the urgency. Give urgency to the values that you have, your health number one, your family number two, making money number three. Can't give what you don't have. I love it. I, I really like that tangible example. I think that's gonna bring a lot of value to our listeners. Now, David, I have a couple questions that I like to ask all of my guests before we do wrap up the show. Are you feeling ready for those? I'm always ready, my friend. <laughs> all right, perfect. The first thing I'm curious about is what is something that genuinely has you excited right now? Could be in your business, could be in um, really any realm, but like, what's something that genuinely has you fired up? So happiness, you know, I built this platform through the podcast, TV shows, speaking, books, coaching. I built a platform that I now, my lifetime goal is to empower others, to empower others to be happy. Uh, the biggest cause of death of people under 50 years old in America is suicide. My main mission in life is to impact at least a billion people. And I figured out that my platform is big enough now that I can teach a thousand people to teach another thousand people how to be happy, which a thousand people times a thousand times a thousand would be one billion people, one eighth of earth. And other people told me I was crazy when I got started on my journey that I could never reach that many people and teach them how to be happy. And I actually can see a quantitative path to the journey and to the impact that I wanna have on the world. And hopefully this will be a part of it of adding to my thousand people, of teaching them these valuable lessons, going back, like you said, and listening to this again and again, because I know this is how people can enjoy the consistent, persistent pursuit of their potential. And I can save lives because there's no reason. I don't know how to, I don't know how to cure cancer. I don't know how to stop car accidents. I don't know, you know how to fix a broken bone. But more people are killing themselves because they're not happy than all of those combined. And I do know how to help people find happiness, empower them with happiness, and teach other people to be happy. And I know happy people don't kill themselves. They, they make more money, they help more people, and they have more fun. I actually see a journey, a path to change the world. Mm. That's huge, man. That's huge. Do you have any habits, David, that have served you particularly well, um, either in your business or your lifestyle? Student in my calendar and do it now. Uh, so I'm a student in my calendar. I study, I raise the awareness and intention on what I'm doing. I created rules like the 520 rule. I keep every phone call to five minutes that I can and every meeting to 20 minutes that I can. Most of my interviews for 20, but we started early, so I'll give you a little extra time. Uh, but more importantly, I do it now. The first question when somebody asks me, can you do this? I see if I can do it now. If I can do it now, I save more than twice the time as well as I'm statistically and exponentially more successful. If I can't do it now, it goes into a do it now folder where I prioritize it by importance. And when I have free time or white space in my calendar in which I studied, I go back to the do it now folder and knock off the things that have been prioritized. So those are the two habits. The number one habit you can get and I'm working on it is creating a habit machine, which means anything that I wanna do in my life I can instantly start doing it every single day, consistently, persistently in the pursuit of my potential. I don't have that habit machine habit done yet because my ego still gets in the way. I forget to do things the same way other people, but if anyone out there can help me or give me better tips of advice on how to create a habit machine, that will outweigh the student in my calendar and do it now advice any day of the week. <laughs> I love it. Well, David, you've been providing so much value to our listeners, and I'm extremely grateful for that. 
um, as I'm sure they are as well. Where's the best place for them to follow up with you, learn more about what you're up to and, and connect with you further? At David Meltzer on Instagram, David Meltzer on YouTube, Google David Meltzer and my website's my first initial last name, dmeltzer.com. I interact with everyone. Uh, happy to give you my book and pay for shipping, give you any advice that I can. So please reach out. I personally respond to everyone and I am very efficient with my time. So it's a little bit cryptic. I apologize, but it really is me. So don't give me those texts, you know, hey, is this one of Dave's interns? No, it's me. If you do do that, I'll probably give you a video and I won't be looking that good going, hey, dude, it's me. Quit wasting my time. Get to the question. <laughs> I love it. David, again, super grateful for you and uh, for you choosing to spend your time here on Young Smart Money. Do you have any last closing thoughts or words of wisdom for our listeners here today? Yeah, very simply, you want to change your life. Be kind to your future self and do good deeds. It'll change your life. Be kind to your future self and do good deeds. Because Uncle David, peace. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed this latest episode of Young Smart Money and got a ton of value out of it. If you did, do not forget to subscribe to the podcast. It only takes about five seconds. If you're walking the dog, if you're going to the gym, pull that phone out of your pocket, press that subscribe button, and uh, drop us some love in the ratings and review sections as well. Those really do help the podcast get in front of even more people and helps us get even more amazing guests on the show. And I do read each and every one of your ratings, reviews, message that you send me. Uh, they, they really do impact me and the show and show me exactly what you want to be seeing here on Young Smart Money. So again, do not forget to drop us a rating, review, and subscribe over in iTunes. And guys, have a wonderful day. Take care. And I really do appreciate you choosing to spend your time here with us on Young Smart Money. Have a wonderful day.